Welcome to the Space Biff Book Space Space Cast. That's right. <laughs> nope, not that one either. <laughs> oh yeah, not that. That's defunct. I'm sorry. It's on SoundCloud, everyone. Welcome to Space Biff Book Space. I'm Somerset Winters Thoreau, the host. And we hey. also have... Hi, I'm Brock. Brock Wilson. And I am Dan... The rock. No relation. No relation. You're gonna really hit the T. Yeah, that's that close. I want people to pronounce it correctly. It's the rock T. Hmm. Yep. The rock hmm. Today, on our hundred and third episode, we generous. we're talking. <laughs> We've done about a really good job that. at half a year. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> got a brisk pace. We are going to be discussing a book by Paul Tremblay called The Cabin at the End of the World. Yes, indeed. So, Brock, why don't you give us some wrong spoilers about this yeah. novel? I'm going to go ahead and tell you uh, a couple things that didn't happen. Uh, so, wrong spoiler, the first... Uh, this is a nice book about a cabin where everyone is nice to each other. <laughs> uh, there is some attempt at niceness. Sure. There's some pleasantries. Yeah. Just everyday niceness. Yeah. There's a barbecue. Yeah. A neighborhood barbecue. Some t-ball. That's true. Sure, yeah. Some grasshopper catching. Some, yeah, some ultimate frisbee. Some sports. fun ideas about swimming in the lake. Some farmers. <laughs> yeah. Some Listen to all gardening. these pleasant things. Uh, speaking of, Home Depot now sells an apocalypse kit with all the modified garden tools and head sheaths you could ever need. <laughs> Wait, do they? Is that a wrong spoiler? Yeah. Oh. <laughs> I was like, Dan I, thought you were serious. Why would <laughs> you, thought, you thought there was a tie, some tie-in merchandise. No. I, that was funny. I believed it for a second, then I was like, Wait. This is just like the book, isn't it? It's just like <laughs> Home Depot, no, but I could see like a sportsman's place selling oh, yeah. like bug out I, kits. I'm sure, yes, a go bag of some yeah. kind. I'm sure there's something. I saw a there. van in our neighborhood the other day that said like zombie control unit. <laughs> and I was wondering how much <laughs> ordnance they had. Sure. I was like, there's like, a, there's like a militia's arsenal right there oh, at that stoplight. Yeah, the seats are all taken out to be replaced with, with ammo. Yeah. Uh, another wrong spoiler: the screenplay for this book has a cast of forty characters, three helicopter chases, an assassination subplot, and three separate romances. <laughs> and a full frontal nude scene. <laughs> well, yeah, I mean that's that seems obvious. Uh, okay, now now real real talk. Uh, this is kind of a heavy book, and I couldn't really think of many knee slappers about it. <laughs> Wait till you hear my synopsis. <laughs> okay, it's the anti-knee right. slapper. <laughs> Wait, what? Well, it's kind of a hard synopsis to do. Yeah, yeah. Because I was, true. I was like, well, how do I synopsize this book in its enormity? That's another wrong spoiler. Um, <laughs> Yeah. Well, why don't you go ahead and synopsize this book for us, Dan? 
Okay, so Go I right do, ahead. Thank you, Summer. I do want to add that uh, disclaimer that this book... Okay, so here be spoilers. Yes. So um, if you're listening and you expected this to just be where we're, we like read the ISBN number and like the dust jacket blurb and tell you about Paul Tremblay, this is not that kind of podcast. Uh, there will be spoilers from now on. And I am going to spoil in great detail everything that occurred at in the cabin at the end of the world. Excellent. And as a shout out to Kelly Wand, this is a Paul Trembops. Trembops. <laughs> <laughs> okay, so we're going to do that now, huh? <laughs> I can't good. even say it. Paul Tremblopsis. <laughs> Very good. I can't help it. It just makes me laugh. Okay. Okay. I got to get in the zone on this because I'm going to cry three times. <clears throat> Whew, okay. Is everyone ready to pay yeah. attention to me? I'm ready. Deep breaths. I've been yeah. waiting. This is this is the one time when I can say that and actually require people's attention. Normally I'm like, everyone look at me. And they don't. So, everyone, listen to me. Do I have to look at you too? No. Oh, okay. You can look at Brock. Because you said look at me. No, look at Brock. Hey, Brock. Everyone look, to the, uh, everyone look at the person to your right. So you have to look at me while you're reading. <laughs> yeah. You're on my left. Okay. The Cabin at the End of the World, a Paul Tremblopsis. <laughs> In a flashback, a girl with dark hair is shown how to draw a scythe on a napkin by one of her daddies, which reminds her of something an orc might carry from The Lord of the Rings, while of Paul Trem- one of Paul Tremblay's favorite movie trilogies. The girl's name is Wen. She is catching grasshoppers outside of an isolated cabin in forested New Hampshire, which she promises her other daddy she won't let cook in the heat of her glass jar. Her daddy apparently cares very much about whether the wilderness will be shorted a half dozen grasshoppers. This flashback is interrupted by a man walking down the driveway. (laughs) He smiles at Wen, triggering another flashback in which her daddies tell her not to talk to strangers. This flashback is interrupted by Wen deciding to talk to a stranger. (laughs) He introduces himself as Leonard and shows an interest in her grasshopper hunt. Rather than being immediately suspicious of an adult playing along with kid shit, Wen agrees to play. (laughs) They frolic in the grass and give names to grasshoppers and have a great time together. Leonard asks innocuous questions about Wen and her daddies. Where are they? Are they within shouting distance? How fast can they run? Do they have any military experience? Just harmless stuff like that. Does Wen have a tracker chip embedded in her shoulder? The huge. The huge. Wen answers each question in turn. Around back? Probably. Not very fast. No relevant life experience whatsoever. No tracker chip. (laughs) In a flashback, we learn that Wen calls her daddies Daddy Eric and Daddy Andrew, and also that the Disney Channel does not live up to Paul Tremblay's progressive standards. (laughs) (laughs) This flashback is interrupted by Leonard getting weird. Three more people amble down the driveway, two women and a man, all of them carrying makeshift agricultural implements. Leonard says that these farmers are his friends, that Wen is his friend too, 
but he's getting teary-eyed, and he promises repeatedly that he'll keep her safe, that nothing is her fault, that she should go and retrieve her parents, blah, blah, blah. Wen is getting bored, and she's a little embarrassed to see an adult blubber like that, so she gladly complies. <laughs> In a flashback, Eric and Andrew are proving... <laughs> Slaying. In a flashback, Eric and Andrew are proving that they're more loving than any any heterosexual couple by canoodling on the cabin's back patio. <laughs> like doppelganger Paul Tremblay's, they grouse at each other wittily. <laughs> <laughs> they grouse at each other wittily and share nested flashbacks about jumping off the rickety dock into the lake, discussing so, some of Paul Tremblay's fa- favorite magical realism novels and debating which of them is more likable to their daughter. You, Eric says wittily. No, you, Andrew says, even more wittily. (laughs) Their flashbacks are interrupted in reverse, Inception style, first by teasing each other's hairy legs, then Eric plucking Andrew's leg hairs, and then by Wen running around the corner to let them know that a bunch of farmers are coming. Nothing is more terrifying to a queer person than a pack of farmers, so they retreat into the cabin. Sure enough, Leonard and the farmers knock on the door. For the next 40 pages, they debate through the wall with Eric and Andrew the merits of letting four farmers with agricultural implements into the cabin. In a flashback, Eric and Andrew bemoan the last time they made that mistake. They were pressured into buying so much Tupperware that they still haven't gotten rid of it, despite depositing rancid casseroles at local evangelical church potlucks every fourth Sunday for the better part of the past two years. (laughs) This flashback is interrupted by the realization that Leonard is no ordinary multi-level marketer. (laughs) The cabin's phones are dead. The farmers aren't going away, and they certainly aren't taking anybody off of their call list. <laughs> In a flashback, <laughs> Daddy Andrew how learns how to... Sh- there are these? How many of these are there? <laughs> In a flashback, Daddy Andrew learns how to shoot a gun, and even brings a wimpy revolver on the trip. But this flashback is interrupted by another flashback in which he leaves the gun in the car. This flashback is interrupted as Leonard and the farmers, hashtag your band name, break into the house. In a flashback, Eric receives a nasty head injury during a high school soccer game. Not in a flashback, he awakens with an unrelated concussion. The farmers have tied him and Andrew to chairs. And when is watching Steven Universe, one of Paul Tremblay's favorite television programs? <laughs> With nothing else to do, Eric and Andrew listen to their captor's exposition for a few hours. Leonard is the leader of the farmers, a benign and complimentary fellow who also happens to be unnervingly bland. Redmond, the other man, is Paul Tremblay's idea of a Trump voter. He's crashed. <laughs> brutish, and often utters such unforgivable phrases as lock her up, and they just need to pick themselves up by the bootstraps. (laughs) The women, Sabrina and Adriani, are women. (laughs) (laughs) Other than that, they don't really have any individual personality traits. One more mystery among many. (laughs) The farmers explained that they didn't know each other until earlier that very week, 
when they received a vision about the end of the world, along with a solution to prevent it, that Andrew, Eric, and Wen must select one of their own to sacrifice in order to safeguard humanity's continued existence. One life to save nine billion. Andrew almost flashes back to that one time that Jehovah's Witnesses told them the same thing, but decides against it. This is no time for flashbacks. <laughs> no time for flashbacks. <laughs> to everybody's great surprise, Eric and Andrew make the outlandish decision to not bludgeon a family member to death on the say-so of four multi-level marketing farmers. <laughs> The farmers respond by playing T-ball, except the T is Redmond and the ball is his head. Redmond, and it doesn't go very far. Redmond <laughs> dies. Eric sees a weird mystical figure in the room, but can't be certain that it's real because of his concussion. From the flashback, I think. I, I wasn't paying attention. <laughs> After disposing of the body, Leonard turns on the TV. A tsunami has wiped out the Aleutian Islands. A flashback to Andrew and Eric <laughs> considering a cruise to those very islands explains that they're a change of that they're a chain of fourteen large volcanic islands and fifty five smaller ones bridging Alaska and Russia, <laughs> occupying an area of over seventeen thousand square kilometers. Primary export reindeer leather. <laughs> <laughs> this informative flashback is interrupted by a special news bulletin. That another tsunami will soon wipe out Hawaii and Oregon. Everybody gasps. Under his breath, Andrew whispers, Portland is in Oregon. <laughs> I don't need a flashback to know that. I might have. <laughs> Leonard Summer had a flashback to geography, fifth grade. Portland is in Oregon. <laughs> Liberal bastion of America, Portland is in Oregon. <laughs> Leonard, I've been to Portland. <laughs> okay, sorry. Stay weird. Oh no, tsunami. <laughs> Leonard explains that this is only happening because they refuse to sacrifice one of their family members. After some more flashbacks, Eric and Andrew are allowed to use the bathroom. Then they eat dinner. Then they go to sleep. It's riveting stuff. That night, Wen sneaks out but is apprehended by Leonard. They engage in a theological discussion over whether a loving God would demand a sacrifice. This discussion is exactly as fruitful as you would expect from a farmer and a nine-year-old. <laughs> In the morning, the remaining farmers once again threaten to kill one of their own if Eric, Andrew, and Wen don't offer sacrifice. Nobody could see it coming, but this threat doesn't prove motivating. <laughs> Suddenly, Andrew is treated to the mother of all flashbacks. He realizes that Redmond isn't Redmond. Instead, he's the knuckle-dragging Red Stater who a decade ago called him faggot and hit him over the head with a beer bottle, sparking Andrew's lifetime of hobbies of gun enthusiasm and plot point forgetfulness. <laughs> Redmond stood trial for the assault. Now his plan of vengeance is obvious. Create a doomsday cult. Figure out where Andrew and his husband are staying in the woods. Break into their cabin. Start two tsunamis in the middle of the Pacific Ocean and have his farmer friends beat him to death in front of death. Andrew. Vengeance complete. 
It's, it's almost obvious. too easy. <laughs> <laughs> While everybody debates the meaning of this new information, Wen starts screaming about her grasshoppers dying. It's a bit of a non sequitur. <laughs> Eric and Andrew use this distraction to their advantage. Eric pulls off his bonds to hug Wen. Surprise! <laughs> I'm surprised. That's his plan. <laughs> While everyone is distracted, Andrew does the same, except instead of wasting his energy on a hug, he runs outside to the car. He gets smashed in the knee by Sabrina's agricultural implement, <laughs> retrieves his gun, and drives her off with two missed shots. He heads back inside and shouts at Leonard and Adriani to freeze. He's seen enough horror movies to know that it isn't yet time to defeat them. <laughs> So he lets Adriani rush him, then accidentally shoots her in the face. Leonard steps in, and they struggle over the revolver. Because of Andrew's sloppy trigger control, Wen also gets shot in the face. It was sloppy trigger control. Keep your finger off the trigger, man. Yeah, don't shoot your daughter in the face. Goodness sakes. This book really is good at advocating gun control. Okay, next. Now that the book's only sympathetic character is dead, Paul Tremblay loses interest and starts telling the story much faster. (laughs) Eric and Andrew are devastated that their daughter is dead. So is Leonard, who becomes a point-of-view character for a few minutes. He gets tied up and held at gunpoint. Sabrina comes back in, but everyone is cool with her, even though she broke Andrew's knee. (laughs) She also becomes a point-of-view character to ensure that the book hits its target 70,000 words to count as a novel. (laughs) In a flashback, she explains how she started seeing visions about the end of the world, then visited the site of a flood and saw more visions, and then how she came here with the other farmers. This flashback is interrupted by the TV announcing that a plague has broken out in China. Leonard says, See? There are never disease outbreaks in the most densely populated third world country on earth. (laughs) (laughs) Never. (laughs) In a flashback, Andrew remembers that he's a professor of Christian eschatology or something. (laughs) It seems like pertinent information for yesterday. (laughs) Sabrina is sick of Leonard's apocalyptic belly aching, so she caves in his skull with a sledgehammer. Now the TV says that airplanes are falling out of the sky. Eric is Catholic, and therefore gullible, so he's freaked out. (laughs) Andrew is a humanist, and therefore reasonable, so he points out that, duh, you idiot, airplanes fall out of the sky like all the time. (laughs) With the sledgehammer, they break the TV to help Paul Tremblay ensure that the apocalypse remains ambiguous. The ambiguopocalypse. The ambiguopocalypse. The ambiguopocalypse. There you go. With Wen in arms, she's dead, by the way. With Wen in arms, Eric and Andrew hike away from the cabin with Sabrina for a guide. She finds the keys to Redmond's truck, then shoots herself with a surprise gun. (laughs) Eric and Andrew debate whether to sacrifice each other to stop the end of the world. It's uncertain whether the apocalypse is real or just a series of coincidences, mostly because they broke the TV. (laughs) In the end, though, they agree on one thing, that being gay in America is basically an apocalypse anyway. (laughs) 
<laughs> so they might as well let it happen. It's now revealed that the entire book is a flashback. <laughs> the perspective wheels backward and outward, then upside down, then forward again. Airplanes collide mid-air and are swept away by tsunamis. <laughs> but only maybe, because the TV is broken. In reality, Paul Tremblay is profusely thanking everyone who put up with him while he wrote this story. This flashback is interrupted by me slamming the book closed in irritation. The end. <laughs> hey, very good. Thank you. I enjoyed that immensely. Nicely yeah. done. <clears throat> I hope I captured the raw existential terror. I think, I really think you did. Of being a gay person yeah. encountering a farmer. Uh, yeah, I, I think you nailed it. Thank you, Brock. And and yet it's it's also, you know, might kind of be true. Farmers are, you know, more rural people might be less. Uh, oh, did you think were, I was telling a joke? These were <laughs> these were amateur farmers though. So That's true. They weren't they weren't good at being they didn't know how to use their they were all from implements. Different cities. Yeah. Every time they killed someone I was like guys, that goes in the soil. <laughs> That is for tilling the earth. That's not for indoor use. <laughs> not, yeah, exactly. That's an outside tool. All right. <clears throat> I've got some bad takes here that I found on Amazon and Goodreads. First of all, we've got a two out of five stars, disappointing and indifferent. This book has the feel of a discarded rough draft. One sense is that the author came up with a very clever idea, an interesting setting, and a tension-filled plot premise. But then, after thrashing around with it for 250-plus pages, gave up and threw the thing away. What else could explain its meandering style, inattention to human behavior, and its bizarrely inconclusive ending? And there are just too many stalling tactics employed to drag it out. Irrelevant flashbacks, inexplicable failures by characters to do a logical thing, and most annoyingly, the peculiar habit of all the characters interrupting each other at the precise moment when someone is on the verge of explaining what is or might be going on. Tremblay has been so much better than this in the past. Skip it. What do you think? Well, they did capture the flashbacks. I agree uh, with every word. <laughs> oh, wow. Well, not all of it, actually. There's a... Uh... Wait, does that... Oh, yep, it was written by one Dan Zuro. <laughs> it's Therati. <laughs> <laughs> no, I assumed you used an alias and spelled uh, yeah. the name with a Z. Dan Zurat. Um, I, I probably didn't dislike it this much, but I did dislike it. Broadly, yeah, and I'm excited to have Brock bring me around on it. Oh, I we'll we'll have to see. <laughs> oh, okay, we'll see what happens. Um, let's see. What did I? So I agreed with this. I I did. I I do feel like it felt very rough and not in an intentional way. Um, but what part of this did I disagree with? Uh, I don't know. It. It's no, it's no get out. Okay. Like if I think of like, like a social justice horror uh, thing, like get out was, was the movie from last year was so good. And it was so good in the way it used 
uh, its character's natural identity uh, that it weaponized, you know, the the fear of being black. Right. Um, and in this, I like there was some of that, but it felt so undeveloped. Um, I don't know. I, I just I, I did think it was kind of sloppy. So tell so Brock, why don't you since this was your pick, why don't you respond to that comment? I I mean, I think I I broadly I I, I don't know. I, I think I really it, it effectively hooked me when I read it. Um, you know, there there had been uh, uh you know, I've looked at a few reviews and people talked about um you know the the pace and the and the length, um, and it's not a long book. You know it's 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 well under three hundred pages. Um, it I I thought it it very effectively. I mean, from the very first chapter, um, I I felt very engaged. Um, I do, I do think that. Uh, you know, and you touched on this in your in your tremblopsis. <laughs> uh, I th- I think that the characters left something to be desired. Um, you know, I I don't think there was a whole lot of distinction beyond. You know, these these two indistinct men are married to each other. These two women are threatening. Um, and Leonard is big, you know. Mm-hmm. I, yeah. I, mm-hmm. I, you know, I, I do think that uh, there's not a whole lot going on there. Um, right. Yeah, I kept getting of... mixed up because it was like, so wait, one of them had a concussion and the other guy got hit on the head with a beer bottle, and I kept getting them mixed up. Uh huh. It was yeah. like, wait, who, who, whose backstory was whose? Well, and one by one, the most distinct <laughs> characters were just knocked off because Redmond. I was like, okay, I don't like Redmond. And right. he dies, and I was. And then he was gone. Uh, but he's such a source of, you know, of conflict, and and you know, he's such a threat that it, it you know, it's almost a shame that he's he has to be the first to go. I was I, so I think that that's one of the reasons why I would say it was really clumsy, because imagine that flashback where Andrew <laughs> realizes who Redmond is. If Redmond mm-hmm. had still been alive. Mm-hmm. Right, because that would have then it would have then, been a lot more yeah, dramatic, yeah, and it would have added such terror. And I think it would have capitalized on the like, here are some queer people who have been picked on, and they live in fear. They can't go to a bar and just like have a drink, mm-hmm. like right. And he, you know, how do you tell someone's gay? One, so here's one thing I love. I really actually liked. I appreciated this. They were not like stereotypical uh, queer people. Like like a Hollywood queer, like a straw right. man queer. Mm-hmm. Right. I liked that. I liked that they didn't come out. And they're like, "Hey, baby, friend," you know. They, there was none of right. that was, like mm-hmm. falseness to them. There's mm-hmm. no campiness, right? Or um, um, they were yeah. like one of them was a gun enthusiast. One was a Catholic. I, you know, they had history. I really liked that aspect. Um, yeah, be, because they. I mean, they they are. You know, and and for all that they were not super distinct, their you know their gayness did not define them. Um, it it was it was an aspect that added to the 
to the conflict and you know and, and contributed to the you know, be their motivations well yeah they're their being a homosexual couple was definitely part of the horror because that was part of why they were so scared. They thought that's why they had come. Yeah, the farmers. The farmers had come. The well, farmers. I like <laughs> they were calling them the farmers. <laughs> the farmers. Not, they're not that's really fine. farmers. <laughs> yeah, I, I think, um, you know, I think you really hit on something like, you know, the, uh, the hostility of this group of people you know coming to the coming to the cabin pretending not to be hostile despite their right yeah you know they're all brandishing weapons but but also that you know then it's revealed oh they're also pushy religious folk and they're they're talking about getting saved like you know that's an extra layer of of hostility against this gay couple Mm -hmm. yeah i I, there were so there were aspects that i appreciated and i and i liked some of the sensitivity of it that said, like, Redmond being the first to go, I think was a huge mistake. Yeah, like to, I think that could have the, could have know, been revised. The only character that has actual, like, overt hostility um, mm-hmm. to die. Like, when that flashback happened, for me, it was such a shrug. That... Oh, that it was the yeah that Redmond was O'Bannon or yeah what yeah. you know what was. difference does that make now yeah I, but but I mean you know and you sort of mentioned this but but also think about how you know that that initial scene uh, you know where the the farmers sacrifice one of their own how different that would have been if it had been one of the women who you know she's apologetic and. You know, seems maybe even unsure of their cause. Yeah, and how effective that you know how much more effective that scene would have been mm-hmm. if she had had to been sacrificed. It would have helped with their red shirtness too, because like the women, mm-hmm. um, until like the very end when I've already forgotten her Adriani or is it no Sabrina gets a flashback. Uh, you know, she gets the first person flashback. She's the only person who ever speaks in first person. Um, until the very end when it's, it starts switching for Eric and Andrew, where sometimes it's third person and sometimes first, which I also thought was clumsy, to be honest. Mm-hmm. Um, but <clears throat> they were so nondistinct that to have one of them die early, I think would have it, we wouldn't have known the character because they died so quickly, which would have been fine. You know, right. you don't to have them be unknowable is okay, um, especially if they shuffle off screen really quickly mm-hmm. but but i knew who redmond was right. very quickly yeah you know to have someone come and and be like we're not here to hurt you yeah right you know <laughs> <laughs> we should have brought right. duct tape that would have hurt um but anyway what's another bad's uh take okay here's another one this one is this one says it's a top 500 reviewer Vine voice. I don't know what that means, but it sounds like maybe this person reviews a lot of books. Oh, this is an authority. Yeah. So this one says, in my opinion, Paul Tremblay's new novel, The Cabin at the End of the World. Okay, i got to interject. Um, a good critic never says, in my opinion, we understand, lady. <laughs> yeah, we are reading so, Vine, a piece of opinion. Yeah, Vine voice, my dimpled buttocks. Okay, continue. Whoa, yeah. Sorry, that Whoa. was a flashback. okay this novel should have been a 90 page screenplay rather than a novel 
While there's plenty of creepy foreboding and suspense in this tale of a home invasion, the novel takes, on excruci takes an excruciating long time to answer urgent questions, and then the payoff disappoints. The four intruders enter the cabin. The color of their shirts is a clue. Frustratingly, Andrew and Eric neither ask enough questions nor the right questions, and the intruders' backstories come way too late in the plot, if at all. These flaws could easily be rectified in a screenplay, and you'd have a pretty watchable, disturbing movie in scare quotes. The novel is meant to make us think about things like religion, zealotry, eschatology, and the internet, and it does to a point. The last section introduces a we and us point of view that is, I suppose, intended to be symbolic, but I found it unnecessarily confusing, and frankly, I was hoping for it to resolve. Bottom line, my advice is to wait for the movie. <clears throat> a lot of the sections did read more like dialogue uh, to me, like, like the second. So, yeah. So you mentioned you liked the pace, and it was very brisk. I, rem I finished the first chapter and then looked at the book, and I was like, man, I'm, I'm like ten percent done with this sucker, which <laughs> right. was kind of a relief. Um, <laughs> but I remember thinking like, there's so much dialogue and it's so repetitive and it's so innate. Like the section where they're trying to talk their way into the cabin just goes to excess yeah. and it's fine like like i understand it's trying to draw out the scene so that when the action happens even though the characters are being hurt it's a relief because at least it's not this waiting game right it's not the building tension yeah. um yeah. like it's better to get punched in the head and get a concussion than to play this <laughs> what's going on uh game any longer so that was fine um but i think it would have worked i do think it would have worked better as a film um yeah, yeah, and you know, and and I was going to suggest maybe as a sh as a short story, but you know, I think that you run into the same the same issues where you're just reading dialogue. Yeah, you know, where it's just people, uh, it's just people arguing. Um, yeah, I also, you know, I don't feel so. She's this. Uh, reviewer says it's supposed to make us think about all these things and you know they are brought up but it didn't make me think about it yeah it's just kind of like brought up as like an aside the internet is bad because people can get on it and then they form these groups and have weird visions together you know i <laughs> right Right, it, it invokes rather religion than like delving make, into it. Religion makes you, what's the word, gullible. <laughs> right. Is that what I was supposed to think about it? Because isn't that what like every I almost, author like, says? So here's another instance. Like This is one of the few times I feel like it, it delved into stereotype, is that the Catholic guy was the gullible one who thought it could be the end of the world. Right. Whereas the guy who's the humanist, even though he teaches Christian eschatology, like what drew him to that? Unless I'm getting them mixed up, but like, but he's the one who's like, oh, this is this isn't serious. I almost think it would have been not only more interesting and less tropey. I actually kind of feel like it would be more realistic to have the one who's religious have already been kind of numbed to this idea of of religious beliefs. Cause one thing that's very common to religious people is not only do you believe something, but you're in a constant state of not believing other religions. Mm -hmm. Like 
like right. that statement every everyone is an atheist because you don't believe in Zeus or you know if, if you're a Jehovah's Witness you don't believe in Allah you know there's yeah. something you don't believe in mm-hmm. um, so to have the character who is a Catholic be the one who's like the world is ending I feel like he would be like well the the things I believe this is not how the world would end mm-hmm. like so he would yeah. be numb to it he he would have That's a, a lifetime of practice in avoiding believing alternatives. Whereas this humanist, I almost feel like having him be the one who is kind of like, actually, this is pretty bananas, guys. Mm-hmm. Yeah, because he doesn't have a, uh, you know, a, a centered point where he looks to for, you know, for that type of wisdom. Exactly. So I feel like Tr- Paul Tremblay maybe had this idea about religion that wasn't actually very well observed. Um, that's a, that's an interesting point, and I, I, kinda... I think it's a lot. Of, I think that's a lot of non-religious people's observance of yes. religion. No, though. I agree that 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 if you're if you're a if you're kind of this humanist perspective, which is, you know, it's a worldview. It's fine. I I, I feel like humanism has a lot to offer, um, but I do feel like that is often an outsider's perspective on religion. That they, it's just all these people dumbly believing a bunch of hooey. And, and from any source. Yeah. And, um, yeah. And, and so, and, and I, it's kind of a problem that I felt like applied to a lot of the novel where <laughs> at no point did they feel like people to me. So, so the exception may be being when, and I, I was serious in my synopsis when she died, I lost a lot of interest. Mm-hmm. Um, yeah. Mm-hmm. Well, yeah. I, and I thought, you know, we laughed at her freaking out about the grasshoppers. So, like in the middle of some of like a really dramatic exposition, yeah, that the, was very human. That was very human. A little kid yeah, would totally do that. Oh my gosh! I left the grasshoppers in the jar. They're gonna die. I think they're dead. Oh my gosh! You guys, we have to go save them. That's yeah, to- a yeah, little yeah, kid I mean, would totally do that. It's you know it's funny in the synopsis because it's such a non sequitur, but it it was really affecting mm-hmm. in the novel that. Oh yeah, like she she is a nine year old girl, and she has a nine year old girl's perspective. Mm-hmm. You know, and and just she like, and she's so clearly so good and undeserving of you know what's happening. Yeah, yeah. Well, I mean, I I tend to feel like horror stories are a little exploitative when they include kids because we have that genetic component to be protective right. of children. Mm-hmm. Like you don't even right. have a choice but to sympathize. Mm-hmm. But I actually did like her sections. Mm-hmm. Um, I liked her inquisitive nature. Um, I liked her little, her outlook on the world. And when she died, I really did feel like I lost the one character who... <laughs> who you cared about. Well, who I cared about and who I felt felt really true Mm-hmm. Um, yeah, Brock, were you going to say something else uh, about like stereotyping or religion or? Oh, it looked like possibly, potentially I was, but. Uh, okay, so I have a follow. Okay. I have a follow up question to this person's review. She meant the the reviewer mentions the color of their shirts, and like another reviewer says that they're the four horsemen of the apocalypse. Oh yeah, and I, pale and white. And I, oh yeah, someone just, mentioned that in the book. That, I'm, I mean, I'm I'm well read. I know what they are, but I, I didn't find that to be like a really good symbol. <laughs> or 
Are they supposed to be the four horsemen I, of the apocalypse? I mean, I I think that just because uh, there's four yes, of them, yes, they are. <laughs> um, and then I also uh, there's also the fact that they beat their plows in or their they beat their plows into spears, right? Oh, sure. Um, you know, there's that sort of end times imagery. Uh, yeah, I I thought that was I thought that was an interesting idea maybe um but i don't i don't think it i just was, don't, i just don't think it it followed through at all I, yeah i don't think it was connected enough was to it? the story i don't like at all do they require sacrifices i don't well when, when do they the, kill each other I, when the one <laughs> character who was big into christian eschatology but it didn't tell you that until like the end <laughs> I, I, I've got to say, I, in one way that I think this would be better as a screenplay is just in structuring. Because the way the novel is structured is that it, it, it all occurs at the cabin. But I feel like a few introductory scenes to the actual characters that weren't flashbacks. Like, talk about them getting to the cabin. Let me see this family in interaction at any point. Yeah. Um, because they're separate at the beginning. It never shows the three of them actually interacting. I don't get a sense of them as a family unit. I, I have so many complaints. Uh, <laughs> I don't want to just rant. Um, I even forgot what I was saying. Oh yeah, this. So the symbolism of like, so when it was saying like that, the character was like, oh, I know about Christian eschatology and symbolism, and I recognize tons of end world symbolism in the way they're behaving. And I was going like, do you? <laughs> right. Do you want to clue us like, in? Is this just is this just Paul Tremblay saying that without necessarily inserting it? Um, not well, to be felt, a dick, I but I actually the... do know a lot about Christian eschatology. <laughs> uh, I've put a lot of work into uh, actually. That's a big component of my background <laughs> is studying that. So. I, I was kind of going like, I, this seems pretty non-denominational to me. Yeah, right. I felt that uh, the professor's explanation of who they probably were, that they got on the internet one day and they had this shared delusion and they all kind of have like this slight mental issue problem but they found each other and then they got each other hyped up and decided to do this thing I mean that felt more like that was what was actually happening is that they were having some shared delusion than, than the end of the world was actually right. happening like it didn't feel like they were you know like Methodists <laughs> <laughs> you know who had a bad pastor sure. they felt like crazy right. people yeah um, Shared psychosis. Yeah. So, Brock, you're not doing a great job. <laughs> you know, you made us read uh, this book. I mean, Paul Tremblay is really the one upon whose shoulders this. <laughs> oh, okay. Well, because you, because I, I, I was under the impression you liked this book. I did like it. Okay. Um, but I, but I do think it was a. Um. It, it took me on a. A ride, I, I think that it was uh, it was intense and uh, very affecting, and I I think 
maybe I was going so fast that I I sort of hydroplaned over the uh, over the bumps in the road. Mm. You know? Oh, mm-hmm. <laughs> so how long? So how long just, ago did you read it through. first? Uh, it's been probably like two months. That's oh, okay. Months. Yeah. Um, yeah, I I mean, I I'm not expecting that I'll change your mind. Yeah, uh, but I <laughs> did. I'm willing. Uh, I did appreciate it as a, uh, you know, as a as a scary story. Yeah. Mm. You know, as, as a, uh, you know, it made me it made me wonder, like, uh, you know, it made me maybe examine my my attitudes toward uh, the end of the world, and. I mean, not, I think not in any big dramatic way, but yeah, I mean, I, I definitely enjoyed it. Hmm. Yeah. I was, uh, I was eager to read it because I saw on the front, there was a, there was a blurb by Stephen King (laughs) who said, this is Paul Tremblay at his best. And, you know, the, the usual, like he probably said riveting or something. And, uh, and I don't, I don't know why like an industrial appliance is a description of a book, but, um, <laughs> that's a riveter. Oh, oh, oops. Um, but so I was, I was eager because I feel like one of the things Stephen King does do well, even though I'm not a huge fan of Stephen King. Um, you know, I, I, I read his book on writing once and he talks about, you know, you, you have to make, um, people care about your characters before you do terrible things to the characters. So I, that's what I was expecting, and so when terrible things were happening, and I still felt like I, I didn't know anyone. Um, maybe that, maybe that's part of my source of letdown is that I read that blurb. So you're expecting I, it to have followed Stephen King's advice. Well, I feel like that's just horror writing 101. Mm-hmm. Like, if if you write a story about a, a serial killer who tortures dogs and then someone's mean to him, do you really care? Or are you like, well, you right. know, karma. Right, yeah, get this guy. Yeah. Um, uh, well, you know, I, as you're saying that, I, I almost wonder if it, um, you know, you, you mentioned the we have these, uh, these gay characters and... Um, you know that they they weren't uh, sort of stereotypes. You know they weren't a, um, a hyperbolic version. But I but I almost wonder if um, Paul Tremblay sort of leaned on that fact uh, in order to sort of fill in the gaps of what we knew about these characters. Sure. So he, you know, he introduced the fact that they that they're a gay couple, uh, and then sort of just washed his hands of it and said that like that's enough for you to know for you to feel bad when these bad things start happening right and and i do agree that an easy way to create sympathy immediately with a character is you make them an underdog mm-hmm. yeah. right you make you make them downtrodden mm-hmm. make them marginalized right. in some way and and i think that worked really well for when because mm-hmm. as a child she doesn't understand the way the world works. She's not suspicious at the right times. She's not. Right. She has no power. She's already had traumatic surgeries in her that she. Yeah, remembers. she she already fears for her body in certain ways that a child shouldn't have to. So I like yeah. that about her. Um, I I'm not sure that just saying 
this person is homosexual is enough. I, I this is something I was thinking about. Like, right. was that intended to be the trigger for? So, like to to compare it with Get Out again, where obviously it's doing something similar by leaning on somebody's you know their uh, their blackness. Um, but it shows really that character is is so is so likable. Um, yeah. There's there's more than just there's also the tension of meeting his his girlfriend's family for the first time, which puts anyone on the back foot. You know, they get pulled over by right. a cop, and so now you're dealing with that aspect of blackness in America. You know that you like everyone's nervous when a cop pulls you over, but you're mostly nervous that someone's going to be a prick to you. You're not nervous that you're going to die, mm-hmm. um, right. or you know, spend the night in prison. You know, not necessarily that extreme, but that it'll be more unpleasant. That you'll get hurt, or you'll get re- you know, you'll get pushed around a bit. Um, yeah, there are so many steps that that movie very carefully takes uh, beyond just this character is a person of color, and I feel like this like you're saying is is that it didn't ever really it presented this this broad archetype and then never really i i just i i really liked when yeah um and her death wasn't even a shock though to me it was kind of this anti-climax because she died off screen basically mm-hmm. she's, right. she's the narrator and it says like it goes and black she, and then she and then the other characters no are more. yeah and then the other characters are flipping out I would have. Re- I think it would have been more affecting to have the characters see her get shot in the face. Like it never even says what happens. Right. Um, it just talks about like she has blood on her head at a couple of points. But to have a scene where the character I actually like gets blasted in the face on accident by her daddy, I think would have. <sighs> see, I'm ranting again. It's just that there's so many elements that I can see what he was trying to do. I, I wanted to like what he was doing, but if he had, it did feel drafty to me. Yeah. <laughs> Why are you laughing? Dra- drafty and, and like windy or draft like rough draft? So, like the thing you read, there's an antecedent here. <laughs> draft, <laughs> like so first drafty, draft. in, drafty in two ways, right? No. Like it's a first draft and also it has holes in it. <laughs> yeah. So is that it for bad spoilers? That's it. I, I, yeah, bad takes. Yeah, right. bad takes. Brock, do you have any other discussion points uh, you wanted to so bring up? I mean, up? We, we segued into a lot of... We did. Uh, a lot of good discussion things. Uh, things that were already on my list. Um, I was going to... Uh, Dan, you kind of uh, already went over this, but I occasionally think about... Uh, I think it was... Nope, now I don't remember which book it was. We were discussing, but you said that uh, you don't you don't read to blow off steam... Uh, you read to take on steam. Yeah. Um, and it definitely seems like this book gave you some steam. <laughs> but, provided, but, provided some steam. But I don't think it was the steam Paul Tremblay wanted me to take in. <laughs> right, right. Like, I feel like I was supposed to come away, like, being gay in America is like an apocalypse. <laughs> right, um, yeah. Which is uh, not what I got out of it. Like, I don't, so, I don't, so I don't, I don't read horror books. I don't watch horror movies. So, or at least not very many. Yeah. Like the, probably the most recent one that I've watched was A Quiet Place, which I really enjoyed. But I feel because it had a really good message about family communication. 
Whereas this horror story, I felt I didn't get any point. It just well, felt like it was gore for gore. Well, so, I mean, they're trying to do different things, right? Like, A Quiet Place has been called a horror movie for people who don't like horror. Interesting. And I think that's kind of accurate. Like, okay, I, I okay, liked it too. That's fine. Yeah, I mean, because it's 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 not really about the horror. The horror is the backdrop for like a family and loving your adolescent bratty daughter. I mean, <laughs> this, but like, again, this is something that I wanted to like in this book. This idea of senseless cosmic horror. This I mm-hmm. I mean, so you know, we're we're going back to like the Binding of Isaac, right? Like. Would God have you kill a family member to preserve a covenant? Right. And it it seems senseless, especially in the moment, right? Like, and obviously this is something that Judeo-Christian religions have have placed great meaning on, this mm-hmm. this binding of Isaac's story. And uh, would God ask you to kill your own child? Um, you know, God doesn't have Abraham kill his child, but... um. Right. Uh, which is pretty different. Um, yeah. Like, I was kind of wondering if this was going to do a same, the same thing, where, like, these cultists kill each other off, and then this cosmic deity is like, good job, you passed the test. <laughs> you know? Right. Yeah. Humanity is not callous. So, so that's, uh, that's one of my, my topics. Were you expecting some kind of reveal or twist? I really wasn't. I felt it... (laughs) Like I said, I I feel that the the professor's view of who these people were was probably correct, that they were crazy people in a shared psychotic problem. And they... And and so I, I didn't think the world was ending. I thought the things happening on the television were really just coincidence. And stuff like bird flu happens in China, right. and there was a and uh, I and I just I didn't I didn't think Eric's vision of a light being was real. I was like, oh, he has a concussion. He has a really bad secondary second concussion. Yeah, I mean, yeah. I it, it just didn't frighten me in that way. So, so it sounds like your interpretation was that it was all coincidence, not an apocalypse. Yeah. Okay, Brox, what's your take? Um, so uh, recently, uh, Andy Samberg was giving an award. <laughs> I don't know if you saw this little clip. No. Uh, and he but was, but I bet it's funny. <laughs> so he was talking about, uh, uh, black, the movie Black Panther. And, uh, he, he made a joke about, um, you know, Hey, when you were, uh, when you were casting for this movie, did any of the real Black Panthers come and you know, and ask you if they could audition. And then he, he made a very fast joke about how anyone who was in the Black Panthers was murdered by the government. Uh, and, and that's not exactly the point of, of me bringing that up. But, but what, he said, what he said after that was, uh, the world is and always, been, and always has been a horrible place. It just seems worse now because of our phones. Uh, no, I and agree. that's kind of my th- my thoughts yeah. on. I mean, they have access to all these channels and twenty four hour news cycles. Mm-hmm. You can find disasters, mm-hmm. you know. Right. You can you can 
No, I flip around I agree. And... So you felt it was also coincidence. I yeah. So yeah, I did. Were you coming from a perspective that the apocalypse had happened, like that it was the end of the world? No. So okay. I I think it's a spinning coin at the end of Inception. Okay. Except for not as good as Inception. So. No, not not at all. But I don't <laughs> I I don't think it was written to be either. Yeah. I, and and that I and think that annoyed that, me. You know, and I actually do think that like at the end when the planes are falling out of the sky, it, it almost at that point seems okay. It sort of looks like it's leaning toward apocalypse. Yeah, that was weird. Because that's not that's not something that's as common as like like you said this this densely populated country <laughs> had a disease or a tsunami tsunamis happen spread. every year or, no or, but yeah, I, you know, I agree with you disasters. that the way that the modern news cycle works like okay so we found these islands like easter island where the people are all mm-hmm. dead all they've left is monuments if right. you're a pioneer in the wild west and these people <sighs> starve or get wiped out by a giant wave or whatever you never know Mm-hmm. Right. Your day yeah. consists of avoiding Native Americans <laughs> and shooting jackrabbits and right. trying to have some alone time with your wife where the nine kids can't hear you. <laughs> like, I do think that the nature of our media cycle is very conducive to your interpretation. Yeah. Um, that, it, you know, I can turn on the TV right now and some bad crap is going down. Oh, yeah. Um, that said, I was coming to this movie. Have you seen a movie called this movie? So this book reminded me so much of a better movie <laughs> called Cabin in the Woods. <laughs> I, I actually isn't that a horror comedy? That. It is a horror comedy. Okay, but it's very um, serious about this idea. It's, ho- it's horror tropes. Yeah, it's like, making fun of horror yeah. tropes. Uh, basic, but 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 to uh, you know to parody something, you do it really well, right? Like, right. you just yeah. do it to excess. You do a very competent... Right, and, yeah, and it's accept, such a yeah. good movie. And it's the same idea that in this cabin, there's a necessary sacrifice to keep the world running. Hmm. But it's literal. And the end of it, spoiler alert, is basically that the characters find out that they're just in this game, that if they're not sac- all sacrificed, the world will end, and they go, screw it. If this is what it takes to keep the world running, we're not going to play yeah. And um and and by putting it in this backdrop of a real apocalypse but actually making this Judeo-Christian it's not but but you know this this mm-hmm. eschatological end of the world backdrop it actually is it actually is kind of affecting to have the characters just go like we know we're going to die anyway. That's what I wanted that's what I wanted the characters in the book to do. I mean that when I finished that first chapter and they were like You'll have to make this choice. And it's in my head, I was like, well, the obvious choice is that they're going to want to stay a family regardless of the outcome for the rest of the world. And that would be, I mean, honestly, that would probably be my choice too. Right. But I want, but I, and the farmers were like, and we'll abide by your choice. But they really weren't. I mean, there's no way they were going to. Otherwise, there wouldn't be a book. So yeah. I felt, I was annoyed by that. There was no moral stand. Yeah, the, it, the the characters never took a stand where they that what their stand was a stand against craziness. <laughs> at no point yeah. were they were yeah. at no point did they 
gaze into the chasm of eternity and say, no, we reject the terms of reality. Mm -hmm. They never made a moral stand where they said, we value our family and our identity above this bullshit, Mm -hmm. and we're not playing along. They never did that. They just kept being like, no, you're nuts. Don't believe that. And trying to persuade these clearly crazy people to not play this game. Well, and I mean, they did say, we make this choice, but the... We're not going to sacrifice anybody. Well, it, at the end, it was a it was a message of persistence, which I think is a valuable message. But I do think a moral stand um, would have been more interesting to have it be a literal apocalypse and to still have them just we're not playing. Mm-hmm. You know, if 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 the gears of the universe only turn by the gristle of the innocent. Then let's stop them from turning. Mm-hmm. This is pointless. Yeah, that's that's not a, a universe that deserves to live on. Yeah, mm-hmm. and and maybe I'm feeling that way. Cabin in the Woods did it, so maybe maybe I'm wanting the obvious answer. And in a way, it just happened. That was kind of the point in the trilogy we just read, right? Like um, in the Broken Earth by N.K. Jemisin, that yeah. if it takes suffering. In order for this society to run, then let's tear down this society and do something different. Right. Um, so maybe I'm just maybe I've got that message on the brain, but I felt like that's where the book should have got. It felt so natural for it to go there. Um, but I know a nature, part of the nature of cosmic horror, is just meaninglessness. Uh-huh. Though the book still tried to provide a meaning, but I mean the the, ar- the arbitrary nature of the universe. Right. Though, I mean, it still tried to provide a meaning, this idea, like, well, we'll keep going. We'll keep plugging along. Mm -hmm. I don't know. Maybe I'm being down on it because I feel like that's just human nature. Like, your most basic instinct is to keep chugging. Right. I don't know. I don't (laughs) know. Yeah. So one of the reviewers said that the the reason they kept sacrificing each other was so that that event would happen and be like it's just going to get worse if you don't kill one of your own but I I just kind of I wanted to be like well why'd they kill the first guy in the first place if they didn't kill Redmond would anything have happened well in your worldview, <laughs> the tsunamis would have happened anyway Right. Right. Yeah. Like to me, it's just so am- it's intentionally ambiguous. It's a spinning coin in Inception. Neither thing is true. It's there to make yeah. us debate it. And I, I, I kind of feel like the same way as the outcome I want. I don't want to play Paul Tremblay's game by debating. <laughs> <laughs> if my consternation is the price of his book's talking point, then it's not worth the. Right. Does that mean we're done with the discussion? <laughs> no, not at all. It's just <laughs> that that point of discussion was it a literal or a coincidental yeah. apocalypse? Yeah. Okay. I just think it's such a blank conundrum. Yeah, when you when you control all the information and you give such clearly uh, incomplete information, yeah. you, you know you're not you're not uh, sparking debate or. Um, you know, or, or allowing for an interesting conclusion, it's ju- you know, it's it's a non-conclusion. Exactly. And I hope I'm not being too negative. There were things I appreciated, um, and I, I've I've paid some lip service to some of them. I mean, I really appreciated that they were not like straw man, gay people. <laughs> 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 
Yeah. I really right. appreciated that. And and that they, I mean, they, you know, to, to varying degrees, they both want to believe in something. Yeah. And, you know, and I thought that they had uh, an interesting uh, relationship with, you know, with religion and, you know, from their flashbacks, you know, that, <laughs> that uh, they, they came to this from, you know, from an interesting place and, uh, and, you know, and then now they're faced with, well, n- you know, now this is something that we could potentially know the truth. Yeah. But at what you know? But at what cost? So when one of the characters in the flashback, when Andrew turned out to be a gun enthusiast, you have no idea how thrilled I was. Um, <laughs> just you thought it was going to be Die Hard. No, I, but just to have <laughs> like not to have this like queers in distress trope. Yeah, like this idea that like uh, a queer person can be the arbiter of his destiny. And grab a gun and shoot the people who are hassling him in the face, like that. Right. That was really encouraging to me, um, as opposed to just like, well, queer people exist in media to be cute sacrifices, but yeah. they're, they're weird enough and non-mainstream enough that we don't really care that much. You yeah, know, they I, just so I, they are acted so, upon. Right. So I liked when he when it when he it says he's been training with a gun. He has a gun. Um, I'm not sure I buy that he was training with the gun. <laughs> <laughs> right. Um, Just finger on the trigger. Yeah, I was like, you know. Uh, so having grown up where I grew up, and um, go left. Just having grown up with my background and having you know Boy Scouts training, he sure broke a lot of rules. Yeah, he broke some range rules. Yeah. <laughs> You know, but he was attacked by a big dude, so I guess, you know, fair play. Yeah, some of that slips when you're... The adrenaline. When it's the end of the world. Well, so, um, what other talking points do we have, Brock? Hey, that's my my line, as the host. Okay, so you say... Oh, yeah, yeah, yeah. Brock, do you have any other discussion points? (laughs) (laughs) Uh, Yeah, last, most importantly, uh, what is with those grasshoppers? I love well, them. clearly, it's a uh, Christian uh, symbology of <laughs> locusts. Oh yeah, duh. Right. John. The, so when is John the Baptist? <laughs> she ain't gonna eat those grasshoppers. Yeah. So there's this plague <laughs> of grasshoppers, which means that any place in like the United States is an inch away from the apocalypse. <laughs> right. right. <laughs> Anywhere that grows plants. Yeah. Watch <laughs> out. Yeah. Yeah. Uh, Did you have an answer I th- to this? I mean, no. I, I mean, uh, I just thought it was a kid. I it felt a kid like thing. it was, a, but it was a detail where, like, she named one of them Leonard, and she caught seven grasshoppers, and I was like, "Does that?" I thought she caught eight. Point to that? No, I think she did catch seven. Oh. I think it was seven. And they all died in the jar. The jar yeah. is the cabin. Whoa, it's symbolic, I guess. The jar is the world. Oh, okay, so they all died in the cabin. But they don't. So they, Her daddy's escaped. They, I know. I think that there's no symbolism. But, but really, they did all die in the cabin. It's a ghost story. Mm. Yeah. They're like, actually, yeah. we're all dead, and we just keep doing this to each other through eternity. <laughs> oh, boy. We've cracked it. Except for that doesn't say, it doesn't say that in the book. So. 
it doesn't say a lot of things in the book. <laughs> and then some things that it says it shouldn't have said. <laughs> it's meandering. That's what I'm saying. Okay. I think that was all all the discussion. Okay. Can I tell you can I tell you a funny thing about a quiet place? Yes. Since we mentioned yeah. it. Yeah. I uh, cry every so, time I like start talking about it. I'm glad I didn't. Um <laughs> So my wife was talking to her cousin about it before either of them had seen it. And her cousin was like, yeah, it's, it's this, it's this horror movie and there's no dialogue at all. There's no talking in the whole movie. Um, And John Krasinski from the office wrote it. And my wife said, no, he didn't. (laughs) Because if there's no dialogue, no one wrote it. I just thought that was very funny. I had a similar conversation with somebody (laughs) about, um, so I, I, my cousin, who I was talking about how I considered Mad Max Fury Road to be one of the best written movies I've ever seen. And he was like, okay. but there's barely any dialogue. Yeah. <laughs> Other things get written what? down. <laughs> <laughs> what do you think writing is? Just right. it's nothing but people. Every book you read is just... Dialogue. Just di- It's like reading a play <laughs> sheet. Yeah, yeah, yeah. That's funny. That's funny. Yeah. Enjoyed that. I'm glad we all agree that this is funny when non-writers are <laughs> <laughs> don't know misunderstand about writing. writing. <laughs> yeah, it's a real hoot. All right. What a throwdown. So, so, so Dan has chosen our next book, and it is called "A Darkling Sea" by James L. Cambius. 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 I am super excited to read this. Um, John Scalzi says he's a terrific writer. Oh, why did we do that? I don't like John Scalzi. Um, <laughs> you could not have. Why did you do that? It's it's on could the not cover. Have picked a worse endorsement. Apparently, John Scalzi's very popular. He is so super he's on, popular. He's quoted he wrote on a lot one of things. Really, really good book. Which one is that? Uh, Old Man's War. Oh. I've only read the Red Shirts one. <laughs> red Shirts was funny, but the second half was so wanky. <laughs> Anywho, we're not reading John Scalzi. We're reading James Cambius. A Darkling Sea. I'm ex- I'm super excited to read this. I've heard good things. Brock has already started. <gasps> yes, um, I've started. I will not reveal anything. No fair. At this point. Uh, people will have to come back to the next episode, episode two hundred seven, right? Yeah. yeah. <laughs> By the on the Dewey Decimal System. <laughs> All right. You're the host. H- host us out. Host out. Oh, c- can I say what? that the, uh, the the theme music is by Ultra Cat? And it is called Space Love Attack. Nice. Which fits with this story. Which fits with our whole brain. Space oh, okay. book space. Oh. <laughs> oh, thank you, Brock, for this. You have yeah. been listening to the highly eruditive. <laughs> yeah, we're keeping that in. Uh, eruditive. Working discussion. Summer, Dan, and Brock. Thanks for joining us. Ciao. Bye. I was trying to be a bit. I was trying to be erudite. Uh.